If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15 is where we find ourselves today. And if you're using one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles that I mentioned a second ago, page 10 uh, is where you will find uh, Genesis 15. We're continuing this series. We're kind of nearing the midway point that we're doing all summer uh, through Genesis uh, 11 through 25, looking at the life of Abraham. And today we're in this, this text in Genesis 15 that's really a, a rich and full passage about this covenant that God makes uh, with Abraham. So I just want to jump right into it and begin by reading Genesis 15 this morning. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when, the, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all of the changing words of our generation, we pray that you would now speak your eternal word that does not change. And then by your spirit, enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. And we pray these things through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a passage, Genesis 15, um, all about promises and revelations. God is revealing himself, and he's revealing himself to Abraham by making promises. So we're going to spend our time this morning talking about two promises and three revelations that we see in this chapter. So first, let's talk about the two promises. 
Uh, if you've been with us in this series, you've already heard uh, some of the promises that God has made to Abram. And the two, we find as we trace this story through the book of Genesis, through the life of Abraham, there are two specific blessings that God commits to give him. And that is a people and a place. So Abraham is going to have descendants, he's going to have a people, and those people are going to possess the land of Canaan. They're going to have a place. And it's precisely these two promises then that are confirmed and further clarified and even escalated in Genesis chapter 15. And so as we read it, you may have started to perceive a little bit of the the form and structure of the chapter. The chapter is divided into two divine encounters. One of them is the first six verses. Verses one through six is the first divine encounter that happens at night. And it pertains to God's promise for a people for Abraham. The other, then, it starts in verse 7 and goes through the rest of the chapter, happens at sunset, and it pertains to that other promise, that God's going to give Abraham a place. So this chapter picks up uh, right where we left off at the end of Genesis 14. It says at the beginning of chapter 15, after these things, and it's referring there to Abraham's uh, rescue of Lot. He went after Lot and conquered these four kings and four kingdoms uh, from the east. And in Genesis 14, then he has this encounter with both the king of Sodom and the king priest Melchizedek. Right after this is is where Genesis 15 picks up, and it says, The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Interestingly, if you remember this from last week when we were in Genesis 14, God is largely absent from Genesis chapter 14. There's very little mention of him made in that chapter with one big exception. And that is when this king priest Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. So here, now as God speaks directly to Abraham, he confirms that blessing that Melchizedek gave him in the previous chapter, specifically the blessing that God was going to be his deliverance. And so the first thing that God says to Abraham is, I am your shield. I'm confirming that blessing that that Melchizedek just spoke over you. I am your shield. And then God tells Abraham that his reward will be very great. The word for a reward there is the same word that you would use to describe a mercenary or a soldier's pay or even the spoils of war. And so what we have here is this great contrast that's set up between the spoils of war that Abraham could have taken from those four kings after he defeated them and, on the other hand, the reward that comes from God. And what we learn from this as we step back is that both for Abraham and for us, rewards are one of the clearest litmus tests for where our hope and where our confidence really lie. You will have, and you probably already have had in some way or another in your life, opportunities to gain rewards, be it monetary rewards, be it positions, certain jobs or titles, responsibilities, maybe it's accolades uh, from other people. And those opportunities will be in direct conflict with what it means to be faithful to God. And it's in those moments that you and I will have to choose, do I want the reward that comes from man, or do I want the reward that comes from God? Hebrews chapter 11 celebrates Abraham as the one who traded his homeland for what it says there, a city whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11 also celebrates Moses, the one writing this, as the one who chose mistreatment with the people of Israel, what the writer of Hebrews calls the reproach of Christ, 
as greater wealth than all of the treasures of Egypt. If you remember Moses' story, he was born a Hebrew but raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He had, all, he had access to all of the wealth of Egypt, but he traded that for mistreatment with the people of God. For us, faith means that we look to Jesus and we look to the satisfaction that comes from being united with him. It means that the reward of gaining Christ, as the Apostle Paul will say, and being found in Christ is more meaningful, is more worthwhile than all of the wealth, than all of the positions, than all of the accolades or cheap substitutes for joy, whatever kinds of rewards that we might otherwise be offered. Faith means that we are confident that God's reward really is better than all of those things, even when and even if everything about our circumstance says otherwise. Because certainly, for Abraham, his circumstances do not make it obvious that the reward from God is better. And that's why in, in verse 2, we hear this combination in, in Abraham's response of, of self-pity and longing and doubt, where he says, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? One, one scholar uh, Old Testament scholar refers to childlessness as an unmitigated disaster. It says for a, for a couple in the ancient Near East, childlessness was an unmitigated disaster. There would be no one to carry on the family line. There would be no one to preserve the family inheritance. There would be nobody to care for you in your old age, uh, no one to bury you when you died. And so Abraham has apparently identified one of his trusted, the members of his household, one of his servants, this man named Eliezer, who's going to become the heir since he and Sarah have no son. But this is where God really speaks directly into Abraham's life, confirms the promise that he's already made in some ways before, and he, and he escalates that. He says, no, Abraham, it's not going to be Eliezer. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God says, Go ahead and step outside the tent and look up into the night sky. Look up at the stars. Your descendants will be as numerous as they are. If you can count all of those stars in the sky, then you'll be able to count the number of your heirs. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but there is very little in all of created order that makes me feel as small and makes God feel as big as looking up at the stars at night. And you and I know so much more than, than Abraham knew at this juncture scientifically about the stars, how far away they are, right? The closest one, our sun, is 93 million miles, and then extend that exponentially beyond that for other stars. And how many, not only millions and millions of stars there are, how many millions and millions of galaxies they are, each with all of their own millions and millions of stars. So it truly is this uncountable number, the stars serve, when they show up in Scripture, they serve as a testament to and an assurance of God's unbelievable power and creativity. And over the course of his life, God's also going to tell Abraham, he's going to use a couple other pictures for the number of his descendants. He's going to say at one point, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust. And at another point, he's going to say, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But if there's a picture that really captures not only God's creative power, but his ability and his willingness to bring forth an uncountable people from a childless couple, I think of none better than the stars. And this really is the greater reward. 
as it's contrasted with the spoils he could have taken from those kingdoms. This is the greater reward. Far beyond the, the recovered wealth of a city, this is the wealth of a God who is recovering his entire creation from the effects of sin. This is the wealth of the God who made the stars and who is remaking the world. And as verse 6 says, Abraham, as he looks up at the stars and he perceives that countless number of them, he believed God, and God called him righteous for it. Second promise. The second divine counter that begins there in verse 7. God changes the, the focus. He changes the topic from the people that he's going to give Abraham to the place that he's going to give Abraham. And again, right away, Abraham's immediate reply is one of wrestling with this gap that exists between his current reality and this promise that God is making to him. It's a huge amount of land that God is promising to, to give him. And it's a land that is currently populated with these 10 people groups listed in verses 19 through 21. There's a lot of land. There's a lot of people already in the land. God, how are you going to make good on this promise that you will give me and my descendants all of that land? And God's response to Abraham as he questions God about that is this covenant-making ceremony, right? This really vivid and tangible display where God's going to say, not just in his words, but by actions, by a tangible and vivid display, just how committed he is to fulfilling his promises to Abraham. So when it says there in verse 18 that God makes a covenant with Abraham, the word for makes there, the literal word is cuts. God cuts a covenant with Abraham. And there are really two possible things that are playing out here in this covenant-making ceremony. Most likely, it's really some combination of both of them. One is that God's presence, which is represented by the smoke and the fire, as it passes through the pieces, these cut pieces of these sacrificed animals, it's like God is saying, may the same thing happen to me if I do not fulfill my covenant. And we see in the ancient Near East, this kind of enacted curse was part of covenant-making ceremonies at times. They would, they would enact some kind of curse that would come upon them if they did not fulfill their obligations. There's actually an example of that in Scripture recorded for us in Jeremiah 34, a covenant-making ceremony just like the one described here. The other thing that's playing out here in this covenant-making ceremony is that these sacrificed animals represent the future people of Israel. They represent Abraham's descendants. So if those animals sounded familiar to you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you've made your way through some of the books that are typically harder to read, like when you start a Bible reading plan, you get through Genesis and Exodus, you're doing okay, and then you hit Leviticus and it's like hitting a wall and it's hard to get through. If you've ever made it through that, these animals will sound familiar because it's the same kind of animals that years later when God reveals his law and when a priesthood now exists to, to um, mediate between God and the people, they're the same kind of animals that the people offer for sin offerings and guilt offerings and wave offerings, all these kinds of offerings that are uh, laid out for us in the law. In this, in this uh, aspect of this covenant-making ceremony, God's presence, again, represented by smoke and fire, is passing through the people because God is going to dwell in their midst. He's going to dwell among his people. And then these birds of prey that kind of get mentioned in there, they would represent uh, foreign nations that are attacking the people of God, and Abraham is there driving them away. 
But the fulfillment, right? This is the, 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 the vivid, tangible, covenant-making ceremony God is making with Abraham. The fulfillment of this covenant will not come immediately. And so symbolically, the sun starts to set. This is happening at, at sunset. And it says there that the darkness sets in. And from this same mouth of God that has just promised that Abraham and his descendants will possess the land, God assures him that over the coming centuries, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And here's what we see, one of the best examples we have in such, um, in such a succinct way in Scripture, that God promises both great reward and great tribulation for his people. And ever since there has been a people of God, this has been their reality. Great rewards, some of which we get to taste in this life and some of which we don't, and at the very same time, great tribulation. It's why during his life and ministry, Jesus can come into the world and he can say both, the kingdom of God is now at hand and now is the ruler of this world cast out. You are going to be blessed. You're going to receive great reward. And at the very same time, he'll tell his disciples, you will have trouble in this world. If they hated me, how much more will they hate you? So be suspicious of any paradigm of Christianity that talks about one of these things to the exclusion of the other, or so dramatically overemphasizes one of these things to the exclusion functionally of the other. The people of God are promised both great reward and great tribulation. Moreover, don't miss this out as it plays out here and plays out then throughout the rest of Scripture. As God's people, we must learn to connect our suffering with the patience and the mercy of God. As God's people, we got to learn to connect our suffering with the patience and mercy of God. So God is, is the just judge, but he is also merciful. And, and his mercy, especially in the Old Testament, often just gets overlooked or even willfully ignored. It's not just that God in the Old Testament is the just judge and then Jesus in the New Testament is the, is the merciful one. God is merciful through and through. There are hard texts, and I'll be the first to admit it in the Old Testament, about the Israelites conquering the land and annihilating entire cities. But long before that happens, I need you to see this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what we see in that phrase in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, is that God's judgment waits on his mercy. His judgment waits on on his mercy. And it waits on his mercy for more than 400 years at the cost of the affliction of his own people. This is how God works in the world. His judgment waits on his mercy. The same thing was true of the flood. It was not until the earth was fully corrupt that God brought the flood in the days of Noah. The same thing will be true in a couple more chapters when we get to the narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not until it's completely certain that there aren't even 10 righteous people left in the city. That's when God brings his judgment upon the city. God's going to delay here his judgment 400 years while his own people are enslaved. And you know something if you've ever read the book of Exodus of just how awful that slavery was and just what his own people then needed to be rescued from. Now, with very different specifics, very different circumstances, the same thing is true for you and me today. We await 
the return of Jesus. And we, re- we await his return where he will bring the consummation of his kingdom. As we say in the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. God's people here, and especially God's people around the globe, suffer as we wait for that day to come. But we must always connect our suffering at, to, the, to the patience and the mercy of God. Right? God promised us both great reward and great tribulation in that, in that gap that exists between the promise and the fulfillment of it, this delay in us receiving the fullness of our reward, at least in part of that is because God is patiently and mercifully working in ways that, that you and I often cannot see. But what we know from his, from his character and from the way he has worked and the way he is working in the world is that part of what he's doing there is he's waiting, his judgment is waiting on his mercy. And he's waiting for more people to look to him, to believe on him, and to be reconciled to him. He's waiting for the iniquity of others who will never turn back to him to be complete before he brings judgment. The promise still stands. The reward is coming, and God affirms there at the end, he will bring Abraham's descendants back in the fourth generation, and all of this land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates will be theirs. So these are the two promises that we find here in Genesis 15. Let's now talk about three truths, three revelations that become evident through God making these promises uh, to his people. First, righteousness comes through faith. Righteousness comes through faith. Now this will probably not be a surprise to any of you if you've been um, part of this church for any period of time. As a church, we've done a a series uh, on the book of Galatians where we talked a lot about justification, that God makes us righteous through the finished work of Christ and through our faith in that. Uh, So we believe that we don't earn our righteousness by our works, but that we trust Jesus' finished work for our righteousness. And Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians that there's this great exchange that happens where Jesus takes our sin upon himself And God counts that to us as our righteousness. We become identified through faith with the very righteousness of God. I won't talk much more about that specifically today, but I really want you to see the unity of Scripture here. Because Genesis 15, verse 6, that is the text in the Old Testament that all of those New Testament passages refer back to and bring clarity to how our salvation is accomplished. Paul references this verse in Romans and in Galatians. Jesus' brother James references it in his book. And what we see here in Genesis is that before there was even a law, before there was even an opportunity to try and keep commands from God to attempt to earn salvation from him, because that's what we often do with rules and law. Before all of that, there was God counting Abraham righteous through faith. And so for us, although Abraham had much less than we do, so we take into account all of of what God has revealed. We take into account all of the counsel of God. It still means that we are always, first and foremost, primarily a people of faith, a people of righteousness through faith. And so what I want to encourage us in as a church family, as a community, is to, because of this is the way that we are righteous, because righteousness is through faith, make that part of the way that you care for each other. It's easy to be people who, who are focused on the external, the words that we say, the actions that we do or don't do. Those things are a lot more visible than our beliefs, 
So rightfully so, it makes sense, it's understandable that we would focus on our words or on our actions when we try to care for each other. But if we are people of righteousness by faith, it's precisely those invisible beliefs that matter. And Abraham here in Genesis 15, he says nothing, he does nothing. He just looks up at the stars and he takes God at his word and God counts that to him as righteousness. Because that's true, Let's be people who not only help each other in practical ways and who talk about what our lives look like and, and, and the morality of our lives, things like that. Let's also care about and ask questions like, what are you believing right now? What, what would faith sound like in your life right now? If righteousness is by faith, if we are primarily people of faith, then faith and our beliefs have to be central to our focus. Second revelation we see here. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Faith and doubt can coexist. So here in in really the Old Testament passage about Abraham's faith, we also see him ask apprehensive and doubting questions of God. He does it once for each of these two promises that God makes. And it seems maybe so out of place because God has just told him that he's going to have this great reward And God has just told him that he's going to give him this promised land. And yet each time the immediate response from Abraham back to God is using this uncommon expression to address God. He says, O Lord God. Or your translation might say, O Sovereign Lord. It's It's an expression that really, I think, conveys the apprehension and the struggle that he is feeling in that moment. Abraham, we know him as the man of faith. But Genesis 15 is what that looks like in real life and in real time. And that is that faith and doubt coexist together. Now, a really important clarification in this. There is a difference between doubt that embraces God and turns toward him and doubt that rejects God and turns away from him. The first one, doubt that turns toward God, that's an expression of weakness on our part. Right? We, we are human. We are weak. We struggle to believe and we doubt. And so we at times turn to God and we ask him to accommodate us in our weakness. We ask God to meet us where we are. And that's what Abraham is doing when he cries out, Oh Lord God. He's not shaking his fist at God. He's pleading with God. The other kind of doubt is sometimes referred to in Scripture as being double-minded or as putting God to the test. And this kind of doubt comes not from a recognition of weakness or limitedness on our part. It comes from really a a misplaced sense of superiority. We think that we know better than God does. Or we hedge our bets. We say, well, I'll kind of trust God, but I'm also going to put some of that trust in myself or, or this other kind of God or whatever else it might be. Or, from that standpoint, we brazenly challenge God. We, we challenge God to prove himself because we just don't believe him. And we elevate ourselves over him in the process. So if you've ever wondered, this is exactly why Jesus refuses to give a sign to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. They ask him for a sign, and he says to them, it's a wicked generation that seeks after a sign, and you won't get one. But then he turns around days, hours, maybe even minutes after that, and he will heal hundreds of people who come to him and cry out for mercy, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. 
I love how an author named Bruce Waltke puts this. He says, it takes the spiritual energy of faith to complain. It takes the spiritual energy of faith to complain. In other words, it takes faith to bring your complaint, to bring your doubt, to bring your lament to God. To bring those things to God in your weakness, to seek answers from God requires faith because without faith, you wouldn't even look to God in the first place. Not once in Abraham's doubts, in his wrestlings here in this chapter, is the statement about his faith in verse 6 challenged or, or countered or reversed in any way. So Abraham believed God, and yet in his belief, the very thing that was counted to him as righteousness, there is room for questions, for struggle, for doubt, for apprehension. And in light of this, I want you to know, and I want you to know definitively, that you are welcome here with your doubts. And you are welcome here with your apprehensions and your questions. And your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your family members, they are welcome here with their doubts. If this, is, if this is where the people of God begin, then we must be a church that is truly welcoming and hospitable and compassionate for those who doubt. Because that's always been our history as the people of God. And when we're honest, we have doubts and we have apprehensions too. We don't understand. And we are weak. And we wish that God would make things plain that just aren't plain. So if your perception of the Christian life, your perception of Christians, is that they are those people who never wrestle with doubt, then you have been misinformed. And I want to try to correct some of that today. A Christian is like Abraham, one who believes in the midst of his doubt. A Christian is like the father in this great passage in Mark 9. It's become one of my favorite passages of Scripture where he cries out to God, cries out to Jesus. Jesus is is there and his son needs to be healed. And he says, Jesus, if you can, please heal my son. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And the father says in that moment, I believe, help my unbelief. Those things exist together. I believe, help my unbelief. Christians are those who, in the midst of their unbelief, their struggle, their doubts, they have perceived the God who is there, and they have firmly rooted themselves in him. It does not mean that they are free from doubt, apprehension, and struggle. It means that they are rooted in the God who is there, and they look to him even in their doubt. So there's righteousness that comes by faith. There's faith and doubt that are not mutually exclusive. Third and finally, we see here in this text God is the guarantor of his own promises. God is the guarantor of his own promises. Did you notice what was missing from this covenant-making ceremony? A second party. When God makes his covenant, there's no second party. Covenants really always, maybe except for, for God, involve two parties. They each make commitments. They each bind themselves to the other. But as God cuts this covenant with Abraham, what does Abraham have to do in order for God to uphold his end of the bargain? Right? Nothing. Abraham has nothing to do here, which means that God is not only confirming his promise, he's escalating his promise that he's already made to Abraham about having descendants and about having a land. In Genesis 12, there was a condition 
God first made his promises there in Genesis 12, but there was a condition. Abraham had to leave his homeland and to go to the land that God would show him. Here, there's just an unconditional, unilateral covenant made by God to Abraham. And God obligates himself to do this without any reciprocal action, reciprocal work on Abraham's part. As the author of Hebrews reflects back on this many centuries later, he says it this way in Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Because there is no one greater to swear by, God swears by himself. He is the guarantor of his own promises. And here's what that means for the people of God. It means that we will ultimately never be able to prove God or to arrive at faith by looking outside of God himself. That faith can only come by looking for God and by looking to God. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of evidences and rational thought and common graces that point to the existence of God. But at the end of the day, what guarantee do you and I have that God is there? At the end of the day, what guarantee do you and I have that God is faithful, that God will actually do what he has promised to do? At the end of the day, all we have is God himself. And you can look at that as a Christian in one of two ways. That can either drive you to despairing cynicism or it can be your liberating hope. Maybe you've wrestled with this in your doubt, in your apprehension. Despairing cynicism often sounds like, like getting locked into the fact that that's circular logic. How do we know that God will do what he says he'll do? Well, because he said so. How do we know that God is there? Well, because he chose to make himself known that he is there. Okay, that is circular logic. But every kind of rational thinking has some kind of starting point. So what I would submit to you today is that it's not a question of if your logic is going to be circular. It's a question of what is going to be the center point of your circular logic. Is it going to be you? Your emotions? That, that something is only true if it feels true? Is it going to be our ability to comprehend that something is only true if I can understand it? Is it going to be modern sensibilities? It's only true if a majority of people in our day and age believe it to be true. Rather than let this lock you in a place of despairing cynicism, let this be liberating hope for you. That there has to be a starting point and that God swears by himself because there is no name greater by which to swear. If there were something stronger, if there were something more powerful than God, that he was swearing by that to guarantee his promises, then God would cease to be God, and that other something he was swearing by would be God instead. Because God swears by himself, because God is the guarantor of his own promises, Abraham had, and you and I have, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And in creation, and in redemption, and through the resurrection and the reign of Jesus, God exalts himself to show you mercy. He exalts himself to guarantee his covenant promises. He exalts himself that all of us might take him at his word and believe 
and have that belief counted to us as righteousness. So in your doubts and in your suffering and for your righteousness and for your reward, put your faith in God. There is no one higher to look to, just as there is no other name but Jesus by which we must be saved. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, it is our good that you exalt yourself and that you swear by your own name and that there is nothing greater than you to swear by. We pray, like Abraham, that we would take you at your word, that you would count that to us as righteousness through the finished work of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have accomplished what Abraham looked forward to and that righteousness truly can be ours through what you have done. And Father, we pray that in our doubts and in our apprehension and in our struggle and in this long gap of waiting that we would look to you, that we would connect our suffering to your mercy and to your patience, that we would turn to you with our doubts and struggles and that you would continue to be kind to accommodate us in our weakness. And we're grateful for a weekly opportunity to do that as we come to a table that is prepared not for perfect people, not for completely faithful people, not for those who do not doubt, but for weak and fickle and frail people like me and like the men and women in this room. And that we can come and look again upon your finished work, that you are the guarantor of your own promises, that you do work for us, even when we are faithless in ours. And we pray that as we come and we consider the death of Jesus that is our life and the hope that is ours in him, that you would renew us, that you would stir us up by way of reminder, that you would strengthen us to be people who pursue faithfulness in our lives as we are sent back out into this world that you love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.